This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, a pastor at Grace Church. Exodus chapter 20, where we've been in a series um, talking about freedom. Uh, in fact, the series is called, called Ten Words Out of Slavery and Into Freedom. And so that's where we are. And we are on the seventh commandment today. It is do not commit adultery. And in a moment, I'm going to go ahead and read the text, give you a little bit of an outline of today's message. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember exactly which message it was, but Craig mentioned a fr- funny phrase about putting on your big boy pants. That would be true of today's message as well, that we need to, in a very mature way, put on our big boy pants as we come into today's message because of the sensitivity of the topic and because of the culture in which we live. We live in a hyper-sexed, over-sexed culture. And so when we approach Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery, there's more to say Far more to say than I'm ever even going to imagine saying in one message. And this could be a whole series. So uh, by force of necessity, we're going to be moving over uh, things where we could, we could stop and camp out for a long time on. So that's all I can say about that. There's more to say than I can say today. This uh, is a topic where uh, the temptation can be to walk away hyper Guilty, and you can either shut down and check out because you just already recognize the topic is going to come with a flood of guilt, or it's a topic that can come with a flood of pride. And so we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be listening to the Lord as we look at his word uh, together. And here's, here's why it is uh, such a, uh, a challenge as we go into talking about do not commit adultery. There's at least four different audiences here today. I've wondered about how do you approach a topic like this, do not commit adultery, where adultery touches all of us. It literally touches every person here. So I thought about like ages, like we could talk about teens and we could talk about singles and we could talk about married people and we could talk about older people because adultery touches us all. And I thought maybe a better way of doing it is, is to talk about where we are now with this sin of adultery. And the first group of people I want to address, and I think the Lord wants to address, is those who are tempted with adultery. And by being tempted with adultery, I mean that your imagination is out of control. Uh, your thought life is not reined in. It's, it's kind of all over the place regarding sexual possibilities in your mind. Or maybe you're tempted right now to commit adultery and you are moving down that path. It's in your mind. It's, it's something that you are maybe forging a path towards in your relationships. Maybe you're tempted to cross lines and make emotional connections with people or with somebody that's not your spouse kind of committed an emotional adultery with somebody that you're not committed to by marriage. Maybe you're tempted to visit a chat room. Maybe you're tempted to visit porn. 
online, maybe click that email that seems to come to you often, maybe read material that draws you away from your spouse or commits you in a loving or romantic or an erotic way with somebody that is not your spouse. Maybe you're, you're tempted to dress or act a certain way to lure somebody to you sexually. Or you can't seem to get rid of the memories from the past. Maybe you're fighting well. Maybe you're fighting the good fight of faith. And, and you're fighting hard and you're fighting well, but the memories of the past seem to haunt you. And maybe you see so many people around you falling you're tempted to go in the same direction. Why even fight? So there's tempted people today. I think the Lord wants to speak to you if you're tempted. And then there's trapped people. People who have moved beyond the, the place of temptation. You've explored the possibilities. And now you find yourself trapped. Maybe you're in a sexual relationship right now with somebody. And you can't seem to stop. You said you weren't going to go there. You said that line is never going to be crossed. And then you crossed the line and you said, well, we'll never do that again. We'll never cross that line again. We'll never go there again. God, we promise we'll never do that again. And you can't seem to stop with all your resolutions and all your determinations. Maybe you regularly view pornography. Maybe it's through a magazine or maybe it's something that you're reading or maybe it's something... Some, some, something like a catalog or a magazine that in and of itself is not X-rated, but it's something that you're viewing in an alluring way. Or maybe it is the illicit kind that you see on the Internet. And you know when and where to look at pornography. You know how to create the environment so that you can freely enjoy that and nobody knows about it. And you're trapped. Maybe you can't seem to stop the act of self-gratification of masturbation. It's got a hold on your life. It's embarrassing. It happens in the dark. It happens in the secret. Nobody knows about it. Can't seem to get free of it. Or maybe you're a woman and you can't seem to stop imagining yourself with another man, another husband. What if? And you... Work out the scenarios in your mind of of life with another person. So there's tempted people, there's trapped people. But adultery also touches the scarred people and the wounded people. People who have, because of adultery that's happened around them or that they have committed, they are scarred with anger or they're scarred with bitterness or they're scarred with guilt. Maybe you've been the victim of some kind of adultery because of your spouse. And it hurts you and it grieves you and it angers you. Hate rises up in you and it feels right to hate. And it's got a hold on you. Maybe your mom or your dad or your kids. Somebody in your family has committed adultery and you resent them for it. Bitterness has crept into your heart, maybe self-righteousness, and there's a bitterness there that you can't seem to shake, get free of. Or maybe you were abused sexually. Maybe you've been the victim of rape. Or maybe you've been the victim of some kind of sexual abuse because somebody didn't obey 
the seventh commandment. Maybe you've committed adultery, whether with your mind or your imagination or with your physical body, and you're scarred with the guilt. And it's just something that you can't seem to shake. It's something that you, you are tempted to be identified by. It has a scarring effect on your heart. You, you, you long to be free, you long to worship, and yet the scars remain. Sexual immorality of, of our past seem like a little different than other sins to leave scars that are really challenging to shake. So tempted, trapped, scarred, and, and the proud. Those today who are saying right now, this could never happen to me. I would never go there. I would never do that. This can't happen to me. And the only thing I want to say to the proud, and we'll come back to the tempted, trapped, and the wounded, is just echo what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. Recognize that as pride and self-righteousness in you and stand against that and cling to Christ. So I want to read the seventh commandment, which is in verse 14, in its context and then pray and then get started. Verse 1 of chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he wants everybody to be galvanized by, the truth of being brought out of slavery and into freedom. You are now my people. Therefore, the commandments flow from there. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the father on the children of the to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. In today's, which is the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So just want to ask three questions, kind of the outline that we've been going on through here. This is what we're doing, and we're going to be tr- moving through this pretty quick. What is adultery? What does the Bible say adultery is? What does the Bible say adultery is not? What does Jesus say about adultery? Question number two. How does he define it? And question number three. How do we keep this commandment? We're going to look at just a couple of verses of the Apostle Paul and see what he says about 
keeping this commandment? How do we escape the sin of adultery? And how do we do the proactive good command that comes from verse 14 when God says you shall not commit adultery? So, what is adultery? Here's a really simple definition. Adultery is sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of a marriage covenant. Sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of a marriage covenant. When we say bonds of a marriage covenant, what we're talking about is a faith commitment between two people before God. That's what a covenant is. Numbers 5 talks about adultery in the terms of breaking faith. And it was the context of when a, when a wife uh, commits adultery. Number five says uh, she goes astray and the language is breaks faith with him. In other words, there's this covenant relationship that is meant to reflect and to picture forth an image of God. And two couples break faith. One person breaks faith or both break faith and break that commitment. And when that happens, God's picture of his covenant relationship with his people is not pictured forth for his glory. So it's, it's, it's what happens when faith is broken and a commitment before God is broken, broken. And this has serious, serious ramifications in the Old Testament. Leviticus 20 puts it like this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, in other words, breaks faith with her, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And it's rooted out of Leviticus 20, if you keep reading chapter 20, verse 26 says where that is rooted in. And it's the promise that we see in the very first couple of verses of Exodus chapter 20. It's because God says, you shall be holy to me, to me. So before you break faith with your spouse, God says you break faith with me. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. In other words, I've carved you out from the people. I brought you into freedom and into the family of God. And that's why adultery looks so bad. To a watching world that looks in at the covenant people of God, it does not Reveal God's covenant with his people. He wants it to. So marriage is meant to reflect the, to the world what God is like. What is God like? That's what marriage is, is all about. It's to it's reflect the covenant love that God has for his people. That's why it's so important that it's protected. And that's what's being protected in the seventh commandment. So... Over and over in the Old Testament, we see where adultery plays out and where it's forbidden. And adultery basically is sex with anything or anyone outside of marriage. Adultery includes fornication, which is sex outside of marriage between two unmarried people. So adultery, speaking about a married person or two married people, fornication, two single people. It forbids prostitution, the selling of sex. It forbids homosexuality, same-sex attraction and same-sex acts. It forbids sexual violence, 
The Bible has things to say about rape and pedophilia and incest and even the abuses that happen inside of marriage. So there's certain things about sex that God hates and God forbids. But what's not being forbidden in the seventh commandment, we have to stop here because somebody could be raised in a very, you could be raised in a very conservative background in an overly hyper-sexed culture and read the seventh commandment and think that God hates sex. And it needs to be said that God does not hate sex and he's not forbidding sex here because one reason is that God created sex. Genesis 1, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so forth. And God saw everything that he made, and that includes sex, and behold, it was very good. So God creates it. God even commands it within the context of marriage. If you read the Song of Solomon, it's pretty amazing the way that sex is described in the Song of Solomon. The first time you read it, it can make you blush. Philip Ryken comments about the Song of Solomon. It doesn't take much imagination to understand what kind of sexual intimacy the Holy Spirit has in mind in the Song of Solomon. Although God's word is never pornographic, it is unashamedly erotic. If this comes as an embarrassment to some Christians, it is only because we are more prudish than God is. So sex wasn't the invention of a 13-year-old boy that God came around and said, well, okay. God invented it. God created it. It's his design. He created it. Let's just let that settle in. God created it. He invented it. And it was very good. And it is very good within the context of marriage. Moreover, he commands it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and this is not about procreation. He writes in 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive one another. In other words, he's talking about sex. Don't deprive one another, married people, who because you are in a covenant relationship with one another, have not been given any measure of a gift of celibacy. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Now he's saying come together again, that means have sex. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Married people aren't given this measure of self-control by the Holy Spirit. And he says to avoid temptation, sexual temptation, enjoy the pleasures of sex within the context of marriage. And that is what is... Implied here in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. In other words, it's, it's, it's what the proverb writer wrote when he said, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. He goes on to say, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. 
be intoxicated always in her love. That's the positive of do not commit adultery. Be intoxicated in the God-ordained relationship that he's given to you. Be intoxicated in it and in no one and nowhere else. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So it's important that we see what's being forbidden here is the perversion of God's good gift of sex outside of a covenant commitment. And here, where we are, is kind of where they are, is we are really good, or I'd say the people of God are, and they, we, we get a rule, we get a command, and we begin to ask the questions of how far can I get to the line of adultery without going over the line? Have you ever played that game? Anybody playing that game now? It's games we play with laws and rules. We all play this game. Okay, no, no exception to the rule. We all play this game. How far can I get to the line without crossing over the line and committing adultery? Well, let's look at what Jesus says about the line. Matthew 5, 27, I'll read it. You don't have to turn to it, but it's in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw last week what Jesus does at the Sermon on the Mount is he takes a bunch of legalists, which we are all by heart, And he ramps it up to make sure that nobody thinks, I'm free from this. I'm not an adulterer. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there, Jesus is defining what adultery is. It's not just something that takes place with your physical body. Before it's something that takes place with your physical body, it takes place in your heart. It takes place in your mind. It takes place in your emotions. And it takes place, really, when we leave God and depart from God and commit spiritual adultery with Him first. So it's lustful intent. So adultery is not just the act of adultery. It's lustful intent, which is why I started with the tempted and the trapped, with the pornography and the imaginations. Because lustful intent is whenever we look at someone to imagine the sexual possibilities. We're talking about intentionally looking at or imagining someone to imagine the sexual possibilities. And here is where we get into today's culture. Things about today's culture that must be said so that we understand lustful intent well. Because lustful intent is big business. It's huge business all around the world. It's huge business in America. It's making all kinds of money right now. Lustful intent is is huge. Uh, in, in his book, Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain, William Struthers says the sex industry, and he does not define that just by the pornography industry, you know, the seedy, dark pornography industry, but in the sex industry in itself, all allurement that sells, all the sexuality and the culture that sells. You just walk through the mall, 
That's what he's talking about. Everything that's being promoted and sold via, this, via sex. Sex industry preys on two sets of people, the consumers, the buyers, and the consumed, those involved in its production. And there's a lot of buyers, and there's a lot of people who are involved in its production. Here's some depressing statistics. A full 12% of websites on the net are currently pornographic. That doesn't mean all the others that in some way can be alluring but are manifestly pornographic, 12%. A quarter of search engine queries, around 68 million a day, are related to pornography. There are some 116,000 searches for child pornography daily. This is a, this is a depressing uh, side statistic. Sunday is the most popular day for viewing porn online. Isn't that interesting? The average age at which child first sees porn online is 11. I think that was about the age I was. Maybe 10. Maybe 9. Hardcore pornography. I think I was 9 or 10. 20% of men and 13% of women say they have watched porn online while at work. The pornography industry, $57 billion worldwide, $12 billion in the U.S., has larger revenues than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. What do you think that does on a culture of young men as they're approaching marriage? And women, whoa, whoa, we almost just flew past women. Almost just made, made a whole little insert there just addressing the men. Where pornography now is not just men. Women are um, tempted by pornography. You might be por- tempted by lust via pornography as a woman. What do you think that does to young men and young women as they grow up and they are approaching marriage? Well, Tim Challies in his book, Sexual Detox for the Single Man, and he has one for the married man, says that it, it does this. He uses the language, it pornifies the marriage bed. So people come into marriage with these expectations of what sex is. And these perversions of what sex is about. And it loses its tenderness. It loses its love. It loses its joy. It loses its selflessness, which is what sex is and how it's pictured in Scripture. as selfless and tender and loving. And, and it, it creates something that's violent. Something that's degrading. Something that never satisfies. Something that is ult- ult- ultimately very selfish. And he says that, Men especially are going into marriage, pornifying the marriage bed and and seeking to subdue the personalities of their wives. So, pornography is big business. Lust is big business and it's all around us. So, a great question for us in this culture, knowing that's the milieu that we live in, that's how we walk, and that's the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. You can't, listen, you can't escape it. I just, lest you think, I'm just going to throw up the walls 
around me, and I'm going to throw up every wall I can around my kids. That, that could be a, a real subtle temptation, and that could actually have a negative effect of creating an allure with our kids. Instead of teaching them the, the freedom that we have in Christ and the expulsive power that comes in knowing Jesus, we can try to somehow manage it. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm for walls. Trust me, I'm all about putting up walls. But we can say, well, I'll just put up enough walls around me and around my family that I'll be unaffected by what's around me. And, 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 and you're not. Jesus says, clearly, you've all broken this command. All of us. Every person in here has already broken this command. And you might have the most walls up around you that you know, and yet, yet you can break the commandment inside the walls. So how do we escape the sin of adultery? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, and this is how we'll close. 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to look at verse 9. And it's important that we look at Corinthians. I mean, it's, it's actually helpful that Paul's writing a letter to a church that is affected by sexual immorality. And he's helping them to define what sexual immorality is. And how Christianity is observable. And that Christians ought not to be trapped in pornography or trapped in sexual immorality. And he he wants them to see that there is such a thing as sexual immorality that can persist in the church. And to be freed from it. Be freed from it. And here's what he says in verse 9. He says, chapter 6, verse 9. He's just made a case about fleeing sexual immorality. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And just stop right there. If that's all we had was verse 9 and 10, this would be very, very bad news for us. According to what Jesus has said, adultery is. What Paul has just said is that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we have all broken the seventh commandment. We are all adulterers. And we're more than that, according to verse 9 through 10. Idolaters. All of us. We bow down to idols. We create them and we bow down to them. We create them and we bow down to them. We're we're thieves. Homosexuality. Some have practiced or explored with homosexuality. Or, or, or you've stolen things. You're, if you've stolen anything, you're a thief. Greedy, verse 10 says. Drunkards. Revilers. Swindlers. Nobody who's a reviler. Nobody who's a swindler. Nobody who's a thief. Nobody who is greedy. If that characterizes who you are, if that's your identity, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I just want to say that to you. If that is your identity, if that is who you are, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is not my word. That is what the Apostle Paul says. If that's who you are, 
you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what he's saying to a church that's flirting with sexual immorality and not calling sin, sin. But that's not where he stops. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Take your pen or your pencil if you do this kind of thing, and you can circle the word were, because he's going to say that word again and again in just one verse. He says, and such were some of you. In other words, there's been a huge transition in your life, Corinthians. You were this, and such were some of you. In other words, he knows some of the history in the past of everybody, of the people there. And everybody can identify, that was me. I, I was this. I was a reviler. I was a swindler. I was an adulterer. I was a murderer. I was an idolater. And Paul says, and such were some of you. In other words, this was who you were. This is your identity. This is exactly your reputation. This is what you were. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified. You notice the language? Past tense. Something has happened in the Corinthians that creates a past tense situation with a former identity of being a reviler and a swindler and murderer and an idolater. And now he says, not anymore. This is what you were, but now you are washed. That's the language of purity. You are pure. You're purely washed. You're clean. You were sanctified. That's being set apart. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were legally declared righteous. That's a word of holiness. You, he says to the Corinthians, are clean. You are set apart. You are holy. You're holy. That's why he can... Call them saints. Call people who are struggling with sexual immorality. And he can address them as saints. Because saint means holy. You're holy. And he says you're holy in something. You can highlight, circle, underline the word in and by. You're holy, you're sanctified, you're washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's good news. How does washing come? How does sanctification come? How does justification and legal holiness by God, a declaration over revilers that you're holy, how does that come? It comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean that freedom is in a name? What does he mean by that in verse 11? What he means is Jesus is the only one who ever pulls off the seventh commandment. Jesus never committed adultery. His name is free of any tarnishing of any form of adultery. Absolutely pure and clean and free from it. So when The Old Testament says, you shall be holy to me. And God says to his people, you shall be holy to me. You must be or you're going to die. 
Jesus actually is holy before God, represents people and lives a holy life before God so that anybody who commits themselves to Jesus by faith alone gets his holiness. And not just his holiness as a 30-year-old man, but his holiness, his active holiness as a 20-year-old man. His active holiness, teenagers, as a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old who underwent puberty, hello, and hormones. His active obedience to God, his perfect holiness, that's yours in Christ Jesus. That's your reputation in Jesus, in Jesus. So in Psalm 119, where the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Jesus actually guards his heart according to God's word perfectly. Where we do it imperfectly. Sometimes at best imperfectly. While the speech of the forbidden woman in scripture is smoother than oil but ends up bitter as wormwood. Jesus speaks no deceit from his mouth, 1 Peter says. Where Job's final appeal at the end of the book is, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Jesus keeps the covenant that Job can't keep perfectly. And he'll keep your covenant that you can't keep perfectly in your resolutions and your determinations. When God looks at Israel and declares with their idols they have committed adultery, he looks on Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. When Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent and exposed himself to sexual immorality, Jesus drank the cup of the wine of wrath for the sin that came from it. When Lot and his wife weaken in their resolve, God says, flee Sodom. Jesus later says, remember Lot's wife because she weakened. Jesus continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. When David fails to go out into the battle, do you remember the story in 2 Samuel? And he sent Joab. Jesus sets his mind on the things of God and will rebuke his closest disciple when he tries to deter him from the cross to bear the shame of sexual sin. When King David falls because he looked at Bathsheba and one sin led to another sin, led to another sin, led to another sin, and then the tailspin happened. You ever been in the tailspin? Anybody in the tailspin right now? Feel like you're sinking down in the tailspin? And then he's confronted by his sin and he repents and he prays, God, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Jesus is the king that prays, Father, forgive them. Jesus is the king that never prayed, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. For he never had iniquities. When we deserve to be put to death, according to Leviticus 20, which we read earlier, 
Jesus bears our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So cleansing and justification and sanctification happen in the name of Jesus, in his reputation, the banner of his reputation over us and over our sins, giving us freedom, giving us forgiveness, giving us righteousness, and all of that is by the Spirit of our God. That's verse 11, by the Spirit of our God. That's how it all happens. It comes to us by virtue of a new life put in us. Jesus goes into the tomb to pay for all of our sin, including sexual sin, and he comes up out of the tomb. He comes up out of the grave in new life to give us new life, to set us literally free to become in us new life and new power and new ability so that we are never overcome by the sin of sexual immorality. We are fighters by his spirit working in us. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, by union with Jesus. In other words, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you alone. By union with Jesus, and you can do that today if you've never trusted in Jesus. You can trust in him alone. And by union with Jesus, you have been baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Whose life? Christ's life. Christ's resurrection life now working in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in verse 11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, setting us free and regenerating our hearts and giving us faith and trusting in Jesus. When God sees faith in Jesus, he says, clean and purified and righteous and holy. Holy one. Despite your past and despite your present. Holy and clean. So we'll close with this. A word for the tempted. Jesus can sustain you. He can hold you up in the midst of temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You are not unique. You are not on an island. I don't care what your sexual sin is or what your past is. You are not unique. First Corinthians says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. I think, I honestly think, one thing about sexual immorality and, and, and committing a particular sin of sex in our past is that we believe that we are unique. Nobody else has ever done this. In fact, we might believe that lie. Nobody's ever done what you've done. Nobody's ever gone there. There's no forgiveness for you. There's no freedom for you. And you better not tell anybody about it. First Corinthians says, no temptation sees you except what's common. Common to man. You are not unique. You can be free. Jesus can sustain you. From temptation. Singles, you're not denying yourself life's greatest joy while waiting for marriage or if you never choose to marry. The greatest joy, according to the Apostle Paul, is knowing and seeing Jesus, walking with Jesus, living with Jesus, seeing his glory laid out in Scripture. And as Packer says, In these days, it needs to be said, indeed shouted, that accepting as from God a life without what one guy said outlets or sexual acts does 
no harm. No harm. Everybody say no harm. No harm. Nor does it necessarily shrink one's humanity. He says, after all, Jesus, the perfect man, was celibate. And Paul, whether bereaved, deserted, or never married, lived single throughout his ministry. Jesus can sustain you. He can help you. If you're trapped, Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. You know that passage? Tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, he's not talking about, guys, if you're struggling with sexual immorality or impurity, go home and get a butcher's knife and go for it. This is, the, this is freedom for you. He's, he's saying deal radically with sin. Deal radically with it. Don't play with it. Don't slap at it. Cut it out. Get it out of your life. Whatever it is, if it's the TV, get it out of your life. If it's the cable, get it out of your life. If it's a particular situation where you find yourself talking to somebody that you shouldn't be talking to and you get drawn in and you find some emotional thing happening that shouldn't be happening, get it out. Tell other people about it. In fact, this week, tell somebody about it this week. That's that's a great sign that the Spirit of God is at work in you to, to get you free from it. Amputate. Amputate it out. Remember watching this this interview on TV of a guy who you guys have heard these stories, right? Where this guy was mountain climbing by himself and he's he 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 didn't tell anybody where he was and he gets trapped in this crevice in Utah and an eight hundred pound boulder just rolls over his hand, crushes his, his hand, and he's trapped. And I found the interview. National Geographic, I, I just have to read this. His name was Aaron Ralston, and he amputated his hand when death was certain. He got to this place where he knew he was going to die. Nobody's coming. Nobody knows where he is. And he was recorded himself, and then he goes, i got to amputate. I'm going to die if I don't amputate. And some of the guys in here, some of the ladies in here might just need to come to that conclusion. I'm going to die here if I don't amputate. Here's what he says. When I amputated, I felt every bit of it, and you will too. It hurt to break the bone. It certainly hurt to cut the nerve. But cutting the muscle was not as bad. (laughs) Isn't that awful? Overall, it was a hundred times worse than any pain I've ever felt. It recalibrated what I'd understood pain to be. At the same time, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever felt. What I think he means is that I was freed from certain death. And it might be the most painful thing that you've ever experienced to let go of something, to amputate something out of your life that's drawing you in and it's robbing your joy in Jesus. But you need to amputate it and get it out of your life. For the wounded, Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Sometimes it feels right and good to be bitter 
and to be angry, and you think God gets glory from that, and he doesn't. He gets glory by you being freed from bitterness and being freed from anger and being freed from hatred. And you cannot be freed from those kinds of things by staring at the memory of those things. You have to be freed from those things by staring at the good work of Jesus. Staring at his wounds, staring at how he was crushed for our iniquities, staring at the way that he brought us peace and the love that is laid out for you and lavished upon you in Jesus and in your union with Jesus and freedom in him. And lastly, a word to the free. For those who have been set free. I I was exposed to hardcore pornography when I was 10 years old. So the statistics say I should be trapped. And I'm not trapped. Jesus has set me free. And Jesus can set you free too. And if you are free, if you are free, God wants to use you to set other people free. If, you, if you've been set free, and what I mean by that is not that you're never tempted by sexual immorality or impurity, far from it, but you're a fighter because this Holy Spirit lives in you, resurrection life lives in you. You're never overcome by it. You're able to fight by the Spirit of God working in you and by the truth of God. Free others. Set other people free through the gospel. Preach the gospel to them. Ask the hard questions. Guys, go to your care groups this week. Go and and tell them, you know what, I, I think I need to break a bone here. Make it easy for other people to ask those hard questions. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website, gracechurchfrisco.org.